0: See, news, the nature of news is it's, it's not something that you are to do. That's advice. We all know what good advice is, and we love to give it to other people, but we hate to get it, right? Advice is something that you ought to do, but news is a report. It's an announcement about something that has taken place. It's a, it's a fact. It's not what you're to do, but what's happened. You respond to it. And good news is something that speaks into your longings and your desires. One of the things that we see about the Bible is this concept of good news is strung throughout the Bible, and it is good news about what God has done. It's a report that God has shown up, He's come down, He's accomplished something, Uh, and so therefore as we hear that news and as it speaks to the longings of our hearts, it becomes good news, it produces joy, it actually begins to change your life as you understand the implications of that news. And it's a concept throughout the Scriptures. So we've been in a sermon series where we've been talking about our vision as a church. And so one of the things that we've said over and over and over is that our vision is not something that we come up with. Our vision is something that that God gives to us, something that, uh, that He strings throughout His Word. In fact, it's His vision. He has a mission in the world. He has a particular purpose for which He is moving all things in the world. And the gospel, the good news, is directly tied to that mission, to that vision, to that end for which God is moving all things. Now, here's the thing if our gospel, our understanding of the gospel, is too small, then our vision will be too small. And if our gospel is too small, then our joy will be too small. But as we begin to have our understanding of the gospel, the scope of the gospel, the the truly amazing reality of the goodness of this news, then our vision for what God is doing in this world will begin to grow. And as that vision begins to grow, as we saw last week, it begins to compel us out into the world. Much like what we heard in Carrie's story, as we hear this good news of God coming to redeem His world, it moves us out. It moves us into places of darkness with hope, with expectation, with joy. So as we've been looking at this series, we've been in the book of Isaiah, and as we've seen, Isaiah over and over and over is giving us this vision for where God is moving all of human history. He paints this picture over and over and over, and it is so very grand. In fact, it, it's, it's, it's as big as you can possibly imagine as he describes what will happen whenever the Messiah comes, whenever this coming son of David, this king that God will send, will usher in God's kingdom and renew all things. And we see here again in uh, chapter 61 this vision, this looking ahead to the arrival of Messiah. And the interesting thing about his arrival as he describes it here is that whenever he comes, he will preach, he will announce God's good news. The good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God that has come into the world with all of its brokenness. We see right in the very beginning of verse 1, and again, this is the words of messiah as, as isaiah has this vision he is describing the the words of messiah himself whenever he will come so that's who he's talking about not isaiah who's writing it but rather messiah the coming king who would usher in god's kingdom and he says this the spirit of the sovereign lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor now this whole idea of the Spirit of God. This is talking about the Holy Spirit and throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on certain kinds of people in certain positions for a specific task. Uh, The Holy Spirit was that part of God that accomplished things. It was God's power. And so whenever God's Spirit would be anointed on someone, would come on someone, it would equip them and empower them to do something, to bring about God's purposes. But yet, interestingly here, Messiah says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. I've been anointed to preach good news. Not something we would naturally think, that He would come in order to announce something. He would be empowered to announce something so that at the very announcement of it, it would begin to change people and literally change the world. Now, one of the things we notice as he goes through in this description of what he's going to do, literally the good news, is about what Messiah is going to do in the world. And as he describes what his coming kingdom is going to look like, what it's going to mean for the world, the very nature of it is joy. You see that over and over and over. It is good news. It is gladness. And then in verse 8, he says this, not verse 8. Where is it? Verse 7, I'm sorry. The very ending of verse 7, he says, Everlasting joy will be theirs. The nature of this news, when it comes in Messiah, is that it will be everlasting joy for those who embrace the gospel. The nature of good news is that it's good. It's joyful. We ought to be a people of joy. No matter what we're facing in our life, because of the news that we've embraced. So what makes it such good news? As we go through the passage, we see the reason it's such good news is because His coming kingdom means the reversal of everything that is sad. The way that C.S. Lewis puts it in um, The Chronicles of Narnia, The line the Witch, in the Wardrobe, he says, everything sad is coming untrue. Which is a wonderful way to put what the gospel of the kingdom means. Notice here as he begins to flesh out the realities that will come through his reign. Notice how all-encompassing it is. This is why it's such good. It's good news for the poor because his reign will mean a lifting up of the poor. So it's actually physical. So people who are under oppression, people who are uh, without, people who are uh, oppressed, who, who are not able to affect their situation, that His coming reign will mean that they are lifted up out of the prison that they're in. His coming reign will mean freedom from the, for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, this would, of course, include everyone who is in slavery, who is in bondage physically. And in our world today, there are millions of people who live in bondage and slavery. It's an actual real reality even in our country. Human trafficking is rampant even right here in our world. Something we don't see but He does. And part of His reign is a release from every kind of captivity, but it's not just physical, of course. It's also the kind of bondage that we have to sin. The kind of slavery that we experience to sin, to depression, to sadness. The, the experience of being in slavery, or addiction even, is not just the experience of a few, but it's rather the human condition in every kind of way that it manifests itself. But His reign will be freedom, utter liberation for everything that holds us in bondage We see that it will be comfort for those who mourn. There will be this reversal for those who are uh, wearing ashes. It will be a crown of beauty. To wear ashes was uh, was a symbol of repenting over sin, mourning over sin. You would put ashes on the forehead as a symbol of your mourning over sin. But rather, His kingdom as it comes, it will be the reversal of that because it will be the utter removal of sin itself. It will be a crown of beauty the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. It's this picture of reversal of all that is broken, of all that is sad tangibly in our world. And then we begin to see this picture of transformation. It even includes the transformation of His people. Look at the second part of verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. He's talking about His people and the transformation that He will bring about in their life. That that they will be transformed from being a people who are marred by sin, who are turned in on themselves. That's the reality of sin. It turns us in on ourselves. We live for ourselves. We seek to build our kingdom. And of course, it all implodes upon ourselves. But His transformation will mean the transformation of our hearts where we actually become oaks of righteousness. The oak is this picture of a huge, sturdy, stable tree that just grows and grows and grows and spreads and that is the picture that he says his people will be like as he goes about transforming their hearts that we will be like oaks. A big, glorious display of of the wonder and the righteousness of God. That's what will characterize our lives. So it's transformation of his people, but also as he begins to show in verse 4, it literally includes the transformation of culture itself. Look at what he says here and just notice how extensive this is, this reversal. We're not just talking about spiritual things, as great as those are, we're literally talking about the transformation of culture. They, meaning those who are transformed by Messiah, will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. It's this sense of His work through us, through His redeemed people, literally building a new world. Rebuilding the ancient ruins is the idea of you, you rebuild something whenever it's been torn down. Whenever its original glory has been lost, to rebuild it is to restore it, to bring it back to its intended glory. That is a tremendous picture, not only of what He is doing in the world, but what He does through His redeemed people. That He goes about through us rebuilding culture, rebuilding the world. As His kingdom comes, it literally touches every aspect of created life. See, the amazing reality is that God's redemption doesn't just speak to spiritual realities. It doesn't just speak to those those private parts of my life. Yes, I have have Jesus and and I know where I'm going whenever I die, but, but the real realities of my life, the real brokenness that I walk through in my life, it doesn't have anything to do with that. That's what we so often think. But as we see this picture of Messiah's kingdom, we see that God sees and cares about every aspect of brokenness in your world every relationship everything that we see in our world today all that is wrong we all know that this world is not the way it's supposed to be but we cannot imagine that God knows that and actually intends to make all of those things new we can't imagine that it could be that big surely it's just spiritual things But as we look at the gospel of the kingdom according to Isaiah, we see that the renewal that he will bring about will literally include all things. Culture, relationships, business, people, even creation itself as we've already seen in previous chapters. Now, as we see this picture of the gospel, I want you to contrast that to what we normally think whenever we think of the gospel. We normally have a very narrow, truncated view of the gospel. What does the gospel mean? Well, it means that if I pray to receive Jesus, if I walk an aisle, then I get to go to heaven whenever I die. We think that the scope of the gospel is only to deal with our own personal sin problem. And now let me say definitively, it certainly does that. But what we see here is that it's so much more. See, we're so tempted to think that, yes, the gospel, it's, it's only about my private spiritual life, okay? It gives me like a swipe card to get into heaven. You know, it's, it's something that, that pertains to the end of my life, something that, that, that's going to come into play later. Yeah, I made a decision at some point in my life, and it's going to pay off at another point in my life, but the real parts of my life, the everyday realities... My relationships, my family, my work, my own heart, my own struggles, all of those things, well, they're a totally different realm. And we know what we know what actually brings relief in those areas and power into those real life places, right? It's things like money or politics or medicine. You know, if we want to see our world change, if we want to see us change in some way, well, those those are the things in our life that have power, just the physical things. But the gospel, no, no, that's, that's just a spiritual reality. It's kind of the way that we think about life insurance. You have, you have life insurance. When I went to get life insurance, you know, I met with an agent. I said, yeah, this is something I need to get done. You know, it's for the just in case. You know, in case things don't work out, and in, in, in case things end like I, I hope that they don't, then I need some life insurance, just in case that happens. And so let's go through, and let's make it sure everything's set up for that, and then you walk away after you've made that decision for life insurance, and it has no bearing on your everyday life, at least it done for me. I don't talk to my insurance agent on a daily basis. When I'm in pain, or I'm struggling, or I'm facing something, I don't call up my insurance agent. Why? Because he's just dealing with the the just-in-case potentialities. Not my everyday real life. You see, that's how we see the gospel. It's for this just-in-case reality. It's just for this future get-into-heaven reality. But my everyday life, well, the gospel doesn't have much to say about that. But what does Isaiah say? Isaiah says that the gospel is so much bigger than what you think. The gospel is the good news that in Jesus, through His work, God is renewing all things. And it means that He sees every reality of your life that is broken. Every piece of suffering in your life, every painful relationship, every loveless marriage, every broken family, every struggle at work, everything that we see on the evening news, all of these things are the scope of His renewal. And as we begin to see that the gospel pertains to those things, our vision begins to grow as His people. There's this amazing passage in the book of Luke at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke 4. This is right after Jesus has been baptized. You remember His baptism, what happened? He was anointed with the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, just like what it says here. The Spirit of God came upon him in order to empower him for his ministry. But do you know where he went right after that? Right as he began his ministry, he walks into a synagogue in Nazareth. And as he walks in, this is all in Luke 4, a scroll is handed to him it's time for this guy to read he's gonna read scripture today everybody stand for the reading of God's Word and he took it very first very beginning of his ministry and he opens it up to chapter 61 and he begins to read why did he go there Luke says that every eye in the entire synagogue was fixed upon him at that moment these would have been a people that knew Isaiah 61 they had read their Bible How many times in their lives had they heard Isaiah 61 read, and they just longed, Lord, come and do it. Come and send Messiah into our world. Come and bring your kingdom. We've waited too long. Do it. How many times was that their prayer? And yet on this day, standing before them is Jesus. And he begins to read Isaiah 61. He says, the sovereign... The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolls up the scroll and He hands it to Him, and He looks at everybody and He says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Jesus said all of that, all of those dreams, all of those promises are fulfilled in me. The kingdom of God has come in your midst. And throughout his ministry, he went about doing exactly what he says right here. He went about proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. God's reign is here. He went about healing the sick. He went about releasing those in darkness, darkness of every kind. And it was good news news for those who embraced what he was doing. You see, Jesus came to bring the kingdom. He came to rescue. He came to bring in and usher God's kingdom. Through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus accomplished the kingdom. He purchased it. He began to usher in God's kingdom. He, he destroyed forever the powers of darkness. He paid for the penalty of sin. He paid there the very thing that has blown all of creation to bits sin. The very thing that is alienated God from His creation. He literally bore upon Himself the punishment for all of those things and through the power of the cross has won the kingdom, has accomplished it. And so today if you embrace Jesus, if you make His hope your hope, if you believe that He has accomplished the gospel, if you, if you submit yourself to Him, you enter into that kingdom Rain, you experience that transformation that He promised to bring. But there's an interesting thing that happens if you look really closely at Luke 4. As Jesus opens that scroll to read, and He reads verse 1, and then He gets to verse 2, and He stops right in the middle of verse 2. He he reads where it says the, the, uh, the year of the Lord's favor, but He stops right before what Isaiah says right after that, where He says, and the day of vengeance of our God. It's interesting. He says in, in, in Jesus' first coming, He came to bring salvation, to purchase salvation, to inaugurate God's kingdom, but yet as we very well know this world is still broken. So much of what was promised in the vision of the Old Testament, the vision of the Gospel has not yet taken place. You see in the in the prophets in the Old Testament as they looked ahead to God's coming kingdom in the gospel, they saw both this rescue for God's people, his deliverance of God's people, and his judging the earth, his judging sin, his defeating of his enemies, they saw those as coming together, as being in one fell swoop of God's power through Messiah. But what we see in the New Testament is a little bit of a curveball. God loves to throw the curveball. What we see that with Jesus is that at his first coming, he accomplishes the kingdom, he inaugurates it, but yet it will only be at his second coming that the fullness of the kingdom is ushered in, that he comes a second time to judge the earth, to, in the vision of the prophet Amos, let justice roll down like a river, for everything to be made right, for, the, for creation itself to be transformed. He's not yet accomplished that aspect of the kingdom. So here's the question, the application. How do we live in light of that reality? You know, Many have used this term to describe this reality, the already but not yet. That's where we find ourselves living. We find ourselves living in between the first coming of Christ where He came to accomplish salvation, but not yet experiencing His return. Where he will come to bring about all that was promised, to consummate and to complete the kingdom. So we live in the already but not yet, which is kind of a a difficult place to live, right? You see, for those who are in union with Christ, we've already been delivered from sin, we've already been forgiven, we've already been given a new status. We've been brought into His family. We are sons and daughters of the King. We are secure. We've been declared righteous. Our sins have been forgiven. All that has already happened in the first coming of Christ. But yet so much is not yet. We still struggle with sin. We still live in a broken world. All around us there is injustice everywhere. Relationships don't work. We, we still, our bodies are still breaking down. Resurrection has not yet happened. So you see, the reality is we live in between those two realities. And just understanding that becomes a little helpful. And so the question is, how do we live in the already but not yet? How are we to live knowing that we've been rescued, but yet awaiting the fullness of redemption? The redemption of our bodies, as Paul talks about it. The redemption of creation itself. As the New Testament describes that, it says that we are... To seek His kingdom. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. He says that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come. That is to be our central prayer. God, come back and bring Your kingdom in all of its fullness. Now what does that mean? We get beamed up to heaven? No. It means Your will is done here on the earth just like it is done in heaven. You see, we are to be God's people who live in light of what's coming, who bear witness to a coming kingdom, and who actually live it out here even as we live in the not yet. That is our calling, to seek the kingdom. And so if our vision is not big enough for this, then our seeking of the kingdom and our engagement in this world will not be big enough. So let me stop right there. As we see the gospel so much bigger of all that he intends to do, how does that strike us? How does that move us? Um, How does that affect you as you think about the renewal of all things in Jesus? Right.